You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what he has to say in his word. Well, at this time of the year, it is not uncommon to see custom gifts being advertised, is it? And maybe you've noticed that, that behind every corner and on the side of so many web pages and maybe in the midst of your Facebook scrolling, that there are businesses all over the place trying to sell you a special personalized gift either for yourself or the person that you love. Things like 3D tower crystals that you can put a holographic picture inside of. Sports jerseys with whatever name you want printed on the back. Or even better, jewelry. Maybe even have the birthstones of your children set in them. This week, I heard about a very unique gift. So there was a person who received a phone call from a friend of theirs. There wasn't a long conversation, just a really quick question given. And the question was, the moon or the Titanic? To which, of course, the person responded, the moon, because they know how the Titanic ended up. And to their surprise, they soon received a watch in the mail that was custom-made with parts from one of the space shuttles that traveled to the moon, and it was also made with parts from the spacesuits of those that were on the space shuttle. And then there was also moon dust inside of the watch, which I guess can be pretty toxic, but hey... Pretty cool gift, right? Not many of us can claim to have moon dust inside of our watch. And yet, as cool as that gift is, what's better? Jesus. Jesus is better. And that's what we're going to continue to contemplate again this week, something we started to do last week. Uh, and so we're going to do this in Hebrews, as Philip mentioned earlier. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. And today we're going to be looking at verses, well, essentially, verse 4, all the way through Hebrews 2, verse 4. And you, you probably are aware that this is a bit more text than we looked at last week, because we simply observed last week verses 1 through 3. And if you would, just look at Hebrews 1 for a moment. And you probably were confused last week. I know some of you were. I even had some person come up to me and go, why did you stop right where you were? Why did you stop at the beginning of verse 4? Because you noticed... You know, this person noticed there's no period at the end of verse 3, right? So what do you do? Well, verse 4 begins with a participle. Look at verse 4. It says, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 
Well, this is why we stopped at that participle, because it's in verse 4 that the writer all of a sudden focuses on a new subject. Remember last week we were looking at how Jesus is better than the prophets. He's a better revelation. He is the climax of God's revelation. So he far surpasses everything that the prophets had given because he was the exact representation of God. Remember how the prophets preached a message. Jesus is the message. Well, this week we're shifting gears to notice this now change of direction that the writer takes where he is now going to point out how Jesus is better than the angels. And so if you're a note taker, our outline today is this. We're going to look at five proofs why Jesus is better than the angels. Five proofs or five reasons why Jesus is better and greater than the angels. Before we really dive into things, though, I do want us to simply appreciate how much space is given to comparing Jesus to angels because, I mean, not only is this subject of angels clearly a matter of first priority, and we know that because of how quickly the writer gets into talking about angels. I mean, again, we're only four verses in, but we also have to notice how the writer spends a full two chapters on this subject. And so we have to ask the question, why? Why would he do that? Why so much space? But here's why. Because the Jews had a very, very high view of angels. And remember, again, the writer of Hebrews is writing specifically to a, a, a group of people that had a rich Jewish background. Certainly, he's writing to Christians. We don't know who's writing this letter, but the entire letter has a very Jewish flavor. Why there's you know, so much uh, spoken of in regards to the temple and in regards to sacrifices. But it's helpful to understand the Jews had a very high view of angels. And we shouldn't be surprised by this, especially when we consider how often they appear in the Old Testament. They appear approximately 110 times. And always to fulfill or carry out important tasks on God's behalf. Everything from serving as his messengers to providing practical help to his people and delivering them from danger to acting as his guides and even to carrying out his wrath. And as you may realize, there were also different kinds of angels suited for different types of tasks. So there were messenger angels, there were warrior angels, there was also cherubim angels that guarded God's sanctuary and guarded the entrance to the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord and, and were removed from the garden. And then you also have seraphim angels that flutter around God's throne. They're the ones mentioned in Isaiah 6 where they are constantly saying, Holy, holy, holy. So the Jews, they understood a lot about angels. And they knew how powerful of beings that angels were. They were aware of how angels destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. They were aware 
of how an angel stopped Abraham from driving a dagger into the heart of his son Isaac. They were aware of how an angel stopped Balaam's donkey from walking along a narrow path, and so many other instances where angels appear they were aware of. Hence, their high view of angels. Unfortunately, though, there were certainly times when their view of angels became too high. And I think this was also true of Christians. And in fact, it's very possible that this is why the author of Hebrews needs to speak to this issue. Because like other places, say, such as Colossians, it's possible that Christians were being encouraged even to worship angels. We certainly know that's the temptation of people to worship an angel where one appears, but constantly, what are they told? No, 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 you don't worship me. You worship the God who sent me. We see this kind of encouragement given in Colossians 2.18. Paul says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels in Colossians 2, verse 18. So it could be that the author of Hebrews is having to speak against that. In any case, though, he certainly wants to put angels in their right position. And here's what we need to understand, that as he makes this bold claim that Jesus is better than the angels, you have to understand that it almost would have been considered, not almost, it would have been considered completely blasphemous to say such a thing, considering how elevated the Jews' view was of angels. Hence, again, five reasons that Jesus is greater than the angels. So what are these reasons? Why is Jesus greater than the angels? Well, the first reason that we're given why Jesus is greater than the angels is this, because first, Jesus has a better name. Jesus has a better name. And no, I'm not speaking about Jesus. I mean, I'm speaking about Jesus, but I'm not speaking about the name Jesus, okay? The key question is, well, what, what's the name? If it's not Jesus, and it's not Christ, okay? Christ was not Jesus' last name. Christ was a title, right? What's in view? Well, we, we are told in verse 5 what's in view because the author here quotes from the Old Testament, and he says this, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. What's in view is the idea of sonship. The name refers to Jesus' title as God's son. And there's two Old Testament quotations here. One is from Psalm 2. The other is from 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. Now, if you were with us last week, you might recall we went into Psalm 2. And that's a fascinating psalm because one thing you see is the coronation of God's king. The Psalter opens up with two amazing psalms. The first speaks to how the rule of God will be established by the law of God. The second psalm speaks about how the rule of God will be established through the king of God. Unfortunately, 
the anointed one that God would send is the one that all the nations rebel over. There's people plotting and scheming about how to take him out. But at the end of the day, none can because he is supremely powerful. And so what's the closing encouragement of Psalm 2? Kiss the Son, lest you perish in his wrath. So this anointed one, we learn in Psalm 2, is also a son, but we don't really understand that he is the eternal son of God until later revelation makes that clear and the new testament authors come along and say that very son spoken about in psalm 2 guess what that's Jesus he's the anointed one he is also God's son the other reference as I mentioned is um, is is 2nd Samuel 7 verse 14 and just a little contrast between Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel. Psalm 2, again, is the coronation of God's king. 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, is specifically the coronation or the enthronement ceremony of David's son, Solomon. Now, obviously, there was a lot of hope that David would have an everlasting rule, that he would have a son that would have an everlasting rule, but as we quickly discover when we read our Bibles, unfortunately, something wrong happened with both of those characters, right? And David sinned against the Lord in grievous ways, and Solomon also sinned against the Lord in grievous ways. And so then the question became, well, who's, who's going to be the everlasting ruler? Who's going to be the son of David that takes up the throne it's Jesus. Jesus, the eternal Son of God. Understanding this, we need to know one thing for sure, that Jesus is, again, not one who became God's Son. He is one who was always God's Son. He wasn't made God's Son. And then we go, well, how is it then that he was begotten? I think the key is in thinking about how he is acknowledged as the son. He was always the son, but then there came this moment in the ministry of Jesus that the father proclaimed him as such. And I think we could look at a place like Romans chapter 1, verse 4, where Paul writes that Christ was declared to be the son of God in power by the resurrection of the dead. So again, Jesus was always the Son of God, but when he was crucified, he triumphed as God's warrior king over sin and death and Satan. And when he was raised, the Father extolled him. The Father acclaimed him. The Father hailed him. The Father cheered his name as the Son to point out his preeminence certainly over all things, over the church, but also over the cosmos. And this is also why Jesus can rightly be called the firstborn of creation. In the same way that Jesus did not become God's son, though, we need to understand this, that, that Jesus did not, say, become born. Again, as he's, he wasn't first born in the sense that we understand begetting, right? We beget children. We produce children, right? It's a very different way than how the Bible uses the word begotten. 
though, because when the Bible talks about begotten, it's talking about Jesus as God's very special, one-of-a-kind Son. He is unique. And Jesus holds a special place in his Father's heart. And he shares in the Father's authority, and he inherits the Father's property. And frankly, friends, this is something the church has always believed. The church has always recognized that Jesus was and always has been God's son. We could look at various creeds from the early church that point this out. I will simply quote from the creed, uh, the Nicene Creed this morning, written in 325. It says this, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, only begotten, that is, and here now it's getting defined, of the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, things in heaven and things on earth, who for us and for our salvation came down and was made flesh and became man, suffered and rose again on the third day, ascended into the heavens, is coming to judge the living and the dead. So Jesus is greater than the angels because he has a better name as God's son. That's the first reason why he is greater than the angels. What's the second? Secondly, Jesus is worshipped by the angels. Jesus is worshipped by the angels. Look at verse 6. We read, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, we aren't totally certain where this particular quote is taken from. Two options exist. It's either from Psalm 97, verse 7, which reads, Worship him, all you his angels, in the Greek Septuagint. It would have been the copy of the Bible that Jesus used. Or it comes from Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, from a song of Moses, which says, And let all the sons of God worship him. Either way, though, one thing that's clear... The writer of Hebrews points out one thing that sets Jesus apart from the angels is the fact that they worship Jesus. And this either refers to worship that took place after Jesus ascended to the right hand of God the Father after his sacrificial death, but it also might be a reference actually to what happens at the second coming of Christ since there is a bit of flexibility with the grammar. So a better translation might actually say the following. It might read, And when God brings the firstborn into the world, again he says, Let all God's angels worship him. So it's not necessarily a word that the writer is using to move on to another point, but it's focused on the timing of Christ. Either way, here's the emphasis. Again, Jesus is worshipped by the angels. And friends, this is something that separates Christianity out from every other religion. What you think about Jesus, what you believe about Jesus, is of eternal significance. Jews don't worship Jesus. Muslims don't worship Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons 
don't worship Jesus. In fact, Mormons believe that Jesus Christ was the first spirit child born to God, the Heavenly Father, with one of his many wives. And instead of acknowledging Jesus as the one true God, they actually believe that Jesus became a God. And they do so on the basis of some of the things that we just looked at. Well, he's called firstborn. God begot him. He had to have been created. No, he wasn't. We could look at John 1. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created by him and for him, right? And without him, there was nothing made that was made. If Jesus made everything, he couldn't have been a created being himself because then there would have been at least one thing outside of the things that were created. But he created everything. And uh, we're going to pass over verse 7, but that's because I intend to come back to that in another point um, in just a little bit here. But as you think about what's being said here by the writer of Hebrews, that the angels worship Jesus, then it should actually conjure up a question in our minds, just as the readers have gone like, well, what does that mean about who Jesus is if even the angels worship him? And it's not like the point hasn't already been made clear in Hebrews. It has in the first several verses. But still, the writer is going back to it again, where this provides a nice transition into our next point. Like, what's another reason that Jesus is greater than the angels? It's because of this. It's because Jesus is God, right? I mean, that's the logical point that you have to come to when you think about the angels worshiping Jesus. It would only be appropriate for anyone to worship Jesus if indeed Jesus is God. And again, we already looked at this last week, didn't we? Because as you look at Hebrews 1, what were we told of Jesus? That he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power so we already know jesus created the universe jesus sustains the universe jesus is the radiance of god's glory he is he is the the very person that perfectly represents who god is because he is just like god in his essence and in his nature but just in case that wasn't made clear, here the writer comes back to it again as he is now comparing Jesus to angels. Jesus is God. Then he, look at verse 8, he quotes again from the Old Testament. Here we see a quotation from Psalm 45. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Psalm 45 was actually a psalm that was used as a wedding song for an Israelite king. That said, I want you to notice something about this specific psalm. And I'm going to contrast it with Psalm 110 because we talked about Psalm 110. It's the most quoted of all the psalms throughout the New Testament. 
authors are coming back to it time and time again. Psalm 110, you would recall that this is where David pointed out that the Lord, who is ultimately God, said to, he says, my Lord, who we know is Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool, okay? Well, think about how Psalm 45 works because you also have another situation where you have a divine being saying again to that he has a divine being. So you have God who is referencing a divine king. And you go, how do you explain that? Only within a concept such as the Trinity does this make any sense at all. The Father is God, but the Son also is God. Again, he is the exact imprint of the image of God. And everything that God is, Jesus is. And therefore, it is appropriate that of Jesus, God says that he rules forever. He will have an enduring reign, which no one will ever be able to oppose. And more than this, think of the kind of reign he has. His reign is righteous. It's perfect. It's upright. In King Jesus, there is no sin, no deceit, no errant thought. But his desires are only perfect, pure, noble, and upright. And of course, that's how he is described, isn't he? In 1 Peter 2, we get a very beautiful description of Jesus and what he was willing to endure as God's son on this earth. Peter's encouragement is certainly that Christians would suffer well for the hope of the gospel. And he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was always perfect. Even as a kid, he was perfect. If you're a parent, like, that just amazes you. You think, like, there's, there's a perfect child in the world? Yes, Jesus was the perfect child. He didn't argue with his parents. He didn't complain and grumble over what they were asking him to do. He shows perfect submissiveness. We have this picture of Jesus, of course, they would make annual trips to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. On one of these trips that they make to Jerusalem, Jesus' parents lose track of him. He's at the temple, and he's, he's just speaking to the religious leaders about God, right? And they're amazed at this child. And all of a sudden, like, Mary and Joseph, they hop on the trail to go back home, and then somewhere along the line they go, where's Jesus? It was kind of like a home alone moment, except for it was, you know, temple alone. I don't know. But then they found him, and they asked him to come with him. He was perfectly submissive to their request. So, we notice that Jesus is God, we also notice this, though. This is our fourth reason that Jesus is greater than the angels. Because Jesus is also the eternal creator. And again, we just, we already saw that in the first few verses. 
the writer comes back to it again. Look at verse 10, if you would. We read, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. We're talking about how Jesus himself rules on God's throne forever. It's almost as if you can think about Job, right, where there's that moment where the rebuke to Job finally comes and God's answer is, where were you when I formed the foundations of the earth? Question after question after question. Where were you when I made this, when I did that? Where were you? And all Job can really say is, I was nowhere to be seen. I feel like that's a similar thing going on here. Where were you, you know, where were the angels when Jesus made everything? <laughs> they weren't there, okay? Before the angels ever existed, all there was was God. The triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever and always. And then Jesus acted. We mentioned John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.16 says also, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And one thing that I just want to touch on again is how last week, one thing that was just fascinating to look at is how even as we think about creation, we read in the first few verses that it is through Jesus that the world was created, but, but the word there that's translated into world is actually the word that would best be translated into the ages. Into the ages. Jesus has created every era, everything that occurs in that era, every person in that era, every event in that era, it all comes from him. All of time and everything that occurs in time is the result of Jesus' creative work. So Jesus is the eternal creator. That's the fourth reason given for why he is greater than the angels. And now we come to the fifth and final reason that Jesus is greater than the angels. And what is it? Fifthly, angels serve Jesus and his heirs. Jesus, angels serve Jesus and his heirs. So look at verse 13. And notice how Psalm 110 is referenced again where it speaks about the victory of Jesus over his enemies. It says, And to which of the angels has God ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Now I think what we actually see here is not only a mention of the triumph of Christ, but we also see right after it a picture of how Jesus ultimately 
triumphs and accomplishes victory. How does Jesus' triumphant work come about? Certainly he goes to the cross, but there's something more going on with how Jesus establishes his reign and rule. Consider verse 14. It says, Are they, speaking of the angels, right, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels, friends, are those that assist the purposes of Christ. And this is, is wonderful because it leads to two things. Certainly it leads to the establishment of God's glory, but it also leads to the good of God's people. And earlier I passed over verse 7, but this is why I waited, because in verse 7 it was a similar point. Look at verse 7. We read that God makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This comes from Psalm 104. Jesus is supreme, friends. Angels are subordinate to him. They are dispatched by him to save his people. Old Testament scholars point out, however, that there is a strong strand of tradition in the Old Testament in which the natural phenomena of wind and fire are associated with angels. So that's why this text is being quoted from. And on the basis of Jesus' supremacy, on the basis of Jesus' preeminence, where does the author go next? Now I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Because this is where he now is preaching. He moves from teaching to preaching. And he says this, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will the point is this friends Jesus God's son is God's last word he's God's last word for all of us and this is why as joyful of a time that Christmas can be, I need to warn you that you don't simply pass over the gift of Jesus. Because if you just pass over what he's done and it doesn't change your life in any meaningful way and it doesn't call you to surrender your life to him and there's no repentance and there's no faith in Jesus and I don't care what you got for Christmas it's just not worth it because one day it is all going to perish I told you last week some of you are going to be sorely disappointed for Christmas we all admitted in this room, right, we have either received a gift that we didn't ask for and didn't really care to have, or we didn't receive a gift that we did want. 
I'm hopeful that this morning you came in here and you're going, yeah, Christmas was okay. We opened some presents. Mm, I'm thankful for what I got, but Jesus is better. Because he is. And it would be, in the mind of the writer of Hebrews, completely unthinkable to ignore Jesus Christ. And his encouragement is so clear to those he was communicating to, and the same message is true for us today. What hope is there for us if we forsake the gift of Jesus Christ? He is God, very God, sent into the world to live a life that we could not live, to die a death that each and every single one of us deserves. But at the end of the day, the question still remains, what are you going to do with Jesus? Because if he is simply a person of encouragement at one time of the year, then you don't get it. Jesus calls on you to surrender everything to him. And friends, you must because of who he is. He is greater than the prophets. He is greater than the angels. He is the eternal, everlasting Son of God. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.